The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. The history of Rocky Horror is a history of cinema. For everything you like about Rocky Horror, there was at least one film that inspired it. And we're going to review them all on Episode Zero. everybody and welcome back to episode zero the rocky horror picture show podcast where we don't really talk about the rocky horror picture show <laughs> my name is william bibiani i'm a critic everybody calls me bibs uh, my name is whitney seibold i too am a critic and uh, you can call me doctor doctor i dr everett scott Brad. Um, yeah, this is the podcast where we uh, look at a pop culture sensation, an ongoing uh, uh, pop culture mainstay, uh, something that people consider very influential, and look at the various films that influenced that in the first place. We previously spent 20 episodes talking about Star Wars, and we are about halfway through. Give or take, we don't actually have like a That's, number. Yeah, but this isn't like TV, where every, every season is quote season is going to be 20 episodes no, long it's but just the first one happened to be as, 20. as long as we like this person happened to be 20 this is about like episode 9 or 10 of the rocky horror picture show podcast and rocky horror uh is you know it's a cult icon mm-hmm. it's uh, one of the great midnight movies uh it's a classic musical uh and uh it is um uh, really in your face yeah and Su- um super queer yeah it's very queer mm. it's very queer um and that's um well, Hollywood didn't have a long history of being in your face about queerness, did it? Uh, it, it didn't, but with the right kind of eyes. Uh, like you, th- we've, And we talked on previous episodes about how uh, queer characters and queer relationships had to be coded yeah. in Hollywood films, uh, largely because of the Hayes Code. Uh, gay characters just weren't allowed on screen. And again, if this uh, is your first episode, we've mentioned mm, it before, but mm. in a nutshell... Uh, a lot of places were starting to censor Hollywood movies in the in the uh, well, actually the whole time. But mm. in the 19, early 1930s, uh, Hollywood decided that if people are going to censor our movies for their content, we're worried about the government stepping in and making it a whole thing. So we're going to create a system of self censorship in which all of the movies that are produced by mainstream Hollywood, which was at the time pretty much everything, uh, have to follow a certain code of conduct. Kissing can only be this long, and you cannot open your mm. mouth. We cannot show divorce in a positive light. Extremely conservative values. And as a result, a lot of things were either pushed to the side if they were being shown more often before, stuff like sex and nudity and mm. violence, uh, and there was just less of it, or it was, less, it was a lot less graphic. And a lot of topics and themes and uh, even just people, the types of characters you see in stories... Uh, had to either be uh, marginalized mm. or written off or hidden. 
And in in, in yeah. text where if you know what you're looking at, you know exactly what's going on. And if you are blithely ignorant that there are people who mm. are not heterosexual, middle class Christians, mm. you, you might not even notice that you're watching a movie that is about queerness. Yeah. Uh, Rope, the 1948 Alfred Hitchcock movie, is about a gay couple. Yep. Unabashedly. Uh, now, they don't never say... Uh, we live together, or we're we're boyfriends. I, I think they or do any explicitly explicit live together. Uh, Aren't they roommates? I think they're clearly roommates. They're roommates. I know. I'm just saying they, they do live together. They do live together. They do live together, yeah. but they they don't say that they're they're a couple, mm. and they don't kiss, and they don't hold hands, or do or say anything explicit. Mm. But when they're talking about murder, it sounds very sexual, and uh, it doesn't hurt that the two actors uh, Farley Granger and um, uh, the other one uh, <laughs> Dahl, I, I, Dahl. Yeah. Uh, John Dahl yeah. uh, Farley Granger and John Dahl were gay uh, in fact Farley Granger was uh, having a relationship with a screenwriter of this movie at the time oh I didn't know that yeah that's, that's and, interesting um, uh, but uh, they they are a, a gay couple and this is about as explicitly gay as I think Hollywood was allowed to get in the late 1940s. Mm-hmm. Uh, Hitchcock actually put a lot of queer coded characters in his movies. Yep. Uh, Martin Landau, but, very famously in North mm-hmm. by Northwest was, uh, was a yeah, uh, well, strangers on a train is, yeah, could be argued uh, rather easily that that's about an unrequited crush that a man has on another man. Mm-hmm. Uh, curiously enough, the straight quote straight uh, reading character in that film is played by Farley Granger. Uh, but uh, Rope is about specifically about a, a queer couple. They're living together, and I feel like the coding almost isn't even there. It's very explicit. Uh, if you, once you yeah. know that it's there, and mm. and honestly, if you're old enough to like just read subtext, like if you're, I first saw this movie when I was rather young, and I think mm. the subtext I would just looked at it as a story of murder. Mm. Uh, and then once I got even remotely older, I was like, oh, mm. okay, I see what's going on here. Um, and it, and it opened up the whole film and it made it uh, a really a lot more fascinating. And before I play a clip of this, uh, I also want to talk about something very technical that's very interesting about Rope. Rope is a mm. film directed by Alfred Hitchcock. And it's got a gimmick. Yep. A lot of Alfred Hitchcock movies have a gimmick. Now, I feel like there is a weird stigma against quote unquote gimmick movies because a lot of people assume that when you call something a gimmick movie, you are implying that there's nothing there but a gimmick. Mm. Bullshit. A lot of movies have a gimmick. And are also good movies. In case in point, Rope, which I think is a very excellent movie for the most part. But it has a really interesting gimmick for the 1940s back when cameras were gigantic. And the idea of uh, long takes and long camera moves was actually really difficult to pull off. Uh, Rope is a film from 1948. It's Alfred Hitchcock's first color movie. And it is it is filmed so that it looks like almost... It's filmed in one long mm. take. Uh, these days, that's almost not impressive anymore. No, because it's, I mean, it's, it's all because you can like use you can digital, all this kind of digital trickery to just erase all of the edits. Yeah. Or Birdman is edited uh, out the wazoo. It yeah. just looks like it's not edited, yeah. and it's Bird- complicated. And I give them a lot of credit for it, but they didn't do it all in one take. I would have it would have been impressed if they I would have been more impressed if they did. Yeah. Um, uh, the the first film I remember seeing that did this trick other than Rope was Russian Ark, which is in the early 2000s. Oh, really? Uh, it's an um, Alexander Sokorov movie, and it, it takes place in the Hermitage, and it sort of traces the uh, the history of all of Russia. 
and it goes into all of the rooms in in the Winter Palace, and there's orchestras playing, and there's dancers dancing, and there's a, a kind of this hostless like host character is a little out of time explaining to uh, other characters what's going on in Russian history. Mm. Uh, but the reason that was so revolutionary was because camera technology had finally advanced to the point where you could shoot an entire 90 minute film without having to edit. Yeah. You could store it in one take. Yeah. Initially, uh, the, the, like cinema uh, cameras, like actually had film in them. Mm. You couldn't film. You couldn't put an entire movie's worth yeah, of film in there. It just, they wouldn't fit. Yeah. They, it was huge. A 90 minute film is, that's going to be five reels. And uh, a reel of film uh, that could fit in a camera in 1948 was only about, 10 minutes long. It was like 10 to 12 minutes. Yeah. So, uh, that was the, the restriction with Hitchcock's edits. You yeah. could only do it in like 10 minute takes. No, they're still very complicated takes. And but he would, he would it, you know, it, for the most part, he would like zoom into Farley Granger's back. Yeah. Like a and character the camera would, would walk go, in front uh, of the camera. Would go like then, black yeah. for just a moment. And you can tell that's where he had to hide the edit. It's, it's not subtle, but it does work. And there's a couple of really hard edits that are just mwah, chef's kiss. Mm. I think the first time I saw this gimmick, uh, outside of rope, which I mm. saw first, um, was in a pretty cool film that nobody talks about anymore, uh, called running time, uh, mm. which is, uh, it's, a. uh, uh, Bruce Campbell plays a uh, former, uh, like an ex-con who gets out of prison, and as soon as he gets out of prison, he gets in the back of a car, and they're right off to the next heist. Mm. So it's real. Uh, uh, it's just it's it's really intense, and uh, mm. I think it's an underrated film, and people don't talk about it very much, and I wish they would. Uh, but the plot of Rope, uh, real fast, is uh, Farley Granger and John Dahl uh, have decided uh, that they are going to live a lifestyle. Uh, Beyond what anyone else conceives of as possible. They're going to live the ultimate lifestyle of murder. They're going to feel like they are superior to other people and they can murder if they choose to. At the beginning of the film, they kill a guy. So the opening shot of the movie. Well, there's the, op- well, there's there's the, the, credits, the credits. And, and then, then, yeah, the, there's the first edit. There, that's the one edit in the movie. Yeah. Like deliberate edit where we, we're looking at the exterior of the apartment. Yeah. Cut. Boom. We're inside. David's being strangled. Yeah. Dude dies. They shove him in like a big cabinet and uh, then they close it up. And then that's where David is for the rest of the movie. And then they invite David's whole, all of David's friends and family over for a dinner party. Now, if they had done this in one take... That actor would have had to stay in that <laughs> cabinet throughout the whole movie. Well, the set is actually really complicated, and I don't think that's necessarily the case. Um, that's true. They, they would have panned away. Yeah, could have gone they they panned yeah. away. He moves away. So here's the deal. It's, it's basically an apartment set. It's uh, three rooms, living room, uh, sort of a hallway, and a kitchen. We don't spend a lot of time in the kitchen. Uh, it's mostly in the living room. And uh, it's mostly just like there's a fourth wall that is missing. We hardly mm-hmm. ever see it. And... As the camera moves in and out and to the left and to the right and comes up with interesting framings and we start seeing like interesting details, like different pictures take on uh, different connotations depending on who's standing in front of them and what's going on in the plot. Um, As the camera moves away from one thing, the rest of the set can be uh, disassembled Mm -hmm. so that when the camera returns, it can take on an entirely new uh, uh, location. And, and There's this, also this also before the in- innovation of the steady cam. So it's yeah. not somebody holding the camera. These yeah. were gigantic machines that had to be wheeled around. Exactly. And also outside of their window, uh, there is an incredibly elaborate miniature New York City. Uh, this is not just like one backdrop. It's not, it's not a painting. Mm. It's not uh, uh, some kind of rear screen projection. It's a bunch of miniatures, and the miniatures are they have they have smoking chimney stacks. 
Mm. They have uh, neon lights that go on and off. The movie takes place uh, 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 at sunset. So the lighting in the film changes dramatically. And towards the end of the movie, neon lights start like flying in through the windows. Um, It's a complicated production. Mm. So if they wanted to, they could have totally put a trap door in there for David to get out of if they were able to do this all in one take. Uh, I want to play a clip from this one because I was going to just like do our usual thing where we say the title and then we cut to a clip Mm. from the trailer. Um, This one's weird, though, because it's all done in one take. um, It was kind of hard to do a conventional trailer. The other thing that's kind of neat about it, the trailer is a prequel to the film. <laughs> so uh, there's a little bit of a prequel thing showing about David about going to his uh, his next appointment, and then Jimmy Stewart breaks the fourth wall and talks about this really cool thing he did. So uh, let's take a listen to the trailer for Rope. I personally consider us engaged as of now. Congratulations. David, no. Look, you can say yes in a taxi. I have a 2.30 appointment. I'm and you're... staying right here. Oh, afraid you'll say yes? I'll see you tonight at Brandon's Park. Okay. You can say yes, sir, just as well as in a taxi. Goodbye, darling. Bye. That's the last time she ever saw him alive. And that's the last time you'll ever see him alive. What happened to David Kentley changed my life completely and the lives of seven others. Janet Walker, Henry Kentley, the boy's father, his aunt, Mrs. Atwater, his best friend, Kenneth Lawrence, a housekeeper named Mrs. Wilson, and the two who were responsible for everything, Brandon Shaw and Philip Morgan. Rope. They should have called it David. I think they really should have called it David. Ro- really? Because ro- rope is the weapon. They they strangle right. David with the rope. Uh, yeah. The the, the Farley, Jane, Farley Granger and John Dahl characters. You don't uh, think that's also a metaphor for like they're tying a noose around their necks? The I know, I get it. Just there's so much there's so much mention of David and he's mentioned by name so frequently. It's what like, about where's David? <laughs> like with like a question mark. I, I think what ha- what happened to David might that's have been a bad. little bit more uh, more sinister. Yeah. Um, but yeah. Uh, Dinner with David. Dinner dinner with David. Uh, This is based on a play uh, from the 20s. And in the play, uh, from what I understand, and this is, I haven't seen the play or read it, but I did a little reading on it. And uh, from what I understand, the Jimmy Stewart character wasn't their teacher. Um, Farley Granger and John Dahl are out of college. They're big fans of Friedrich Nietzsche, who's been floating around in the popular consciousness a lot, thanks to... Adolf Hitler, and yeah. who's who's named in this movie, yeah. uh, about uh, this misinterpretation of Nietzsche, who uh, he said that, uh, and I have read Nietzsche, uh, that you are, are essentially trying to realize, in, in Nietzsche's words, your will to power, that means you're a more powerful, mentally person, and mm-hmm. those who do not complement your mental strength... Are not people you should have in your life. Yeah, they're lesser. Than. Uh, yeah, the, yeah. He, it was. He, he preached a, a philosophy of the self. Yourself is the most important thing. Anything outside of you is is uh, it, it, 
a form of asceti- you know, a form of asceticism. Right? Religions, yeah. sciences, uh, other relationships, just cut them all out. Become the strong mental being that you yeah. can. Uh, and, in, and the byproduct of yeah. that is that your morality or whatever you consider mm-hmm. morality becomes superior to anyone else's. And exactly. You can ignore the, their morality. The, the idea, the idea society. is, um, yeah, morality is a set of all of these like uh, old social strictures. Uh, the idea of helping others over yourself, as uh, Nietzsche said, a kind of form of mental illness. And uh, he did believe, and at least he wrote, that uh, there are people who are just mentally stronger than others. Mm-hmm. And they are the ones who are, are going to realize their will to power. Others are not. He edit- called them the herd. Uh, yeah. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, to uh, editorialize a little bit here. All right. Uh, bullshit. Well, it's a lot of bullshit in there. there. There's, there's every philosopher is a big mixture of of, of interesting ideas and bullshit, and yeah. uh, and another thing that you like a big hunk of rock salt that you have to take with Nietzsche is that he was blazingly sexist. Yeah, uh, he believed that women could not achieve this kind of mental acuity that he was talking about. Um, and I've heard some uh, some women talk very eloquently about how. That that's BS. Here's the interesting parts of these things, but mm-hmm. yeah, you, you can't really well, take all of Nietzsche at once. And that's and um, uh, but yeah, that was taken by the Third Reich and uh, almost deliberately misinterpreted to mean well, if there are people who are more more mentally acute and who are essentially naturally stronger than others, surely that means we can start calling our shots and call ourselves the strong ones. Uh, yeah. we, if we are declare, if we are the superior beings, anything we do previously, what is, previously yeah. good or previously evil by the old morality is going to be good because we said it is. Yeah. And that, lead, and that leads to yeah. concepts of the master race. Um, yeah. there's, uh, a, that's not Nietzsche's philosophy. That's the, most, no, that's, no, the they, that's, that's the, that's the popular misinterpretation. And that's, that's the takeaway I, that I'm not a fan that, of Nietzsche uh, in general, but mm-hmm. obviously, but, and that's really what mm-hmm. rope is about in many respects. Yeah. Well, it, yeah. that's, that's why I bring it up because yeah. they talk about Nietzsche. They talk about how, how it was mi- misinterpreted by Hitler and how, uh, a lot of, uh, young hotshot philosophy students might take the wrong lessons from Nietzsche, which is exactly what happens in this film. Yeah. So, uh, the, the reason our two protagonists are killing David is just for, the intellectual thrill of it to prove that they can get away with it because they're smarter and they kind of deserve to. Yeah. They are, if they're capable of achieving that thrill, then it is morally right. Yeah. And, uh, the, mm. the primary, uh, well, they're the antagonists, but uh, I hesitate to say that Jimmy Stewart is uh, particularly the protagonist because he actually has a lot to answer for. But uh, their foil, if you will, mm-hmm. uh, is their former professor, played by Jimmy Stewart, who is strongly implied to have had a sexual relationship with at least John Dahl. Uh, or no, with Farley Granger. Really? I, th- I assume both. Oh, well. Well, anyway. Uh, in, in, but in the original play, that character was another uh, student of theirs. And, oh, okay. and he's described as being like sort of effeminate. Okay. Uh, well, in the play, in the movie, uh, he's played by uh, James Stewart, significantly older than John Dahl and Farley Granger, and he is portrayed as a former professor of theirs who had intellectualized the idea, these uh, sort of inspired by Nietzsche, uh, that murder, the act of merely eliminating someone's life if they are in your way, uh, is uh, positive, that it is something mm-hmm. that is... Uh, indicative of your own personal strength and their personal weakness. Uh, he 
He, he jo- It seems like he's joking he's, about it. He's but taking he, it from a, a just sort of a place of cynicism. Like he yeah. doesn't. He's not an actual nihilist. Yeah, he's 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 uh, speaking in hypotheticals, but he also refuses to say that he's joking because, on some level, he does kind of believe in the basic idea of superiority. But the plot of the movie is that someone has taken his ideas, his philo- philosophical musings, and literalized them and become genuine monsters. Mm. And that I think is where this takes on. A grander sort of political scheme yeah. The idea, because the play was written Before World War II, the play was written in 1929 uh, The movie was actually uh, Adapted by a screenwriter Arthur, Arthur Lawrence, uh, but also By Hume Cronin, uh, an actor Who, uh, well, well I, been a ton of stuff I knew from like, Cocoon <laughs> Yeah, and I think he was in Shadow of a Doubt, uh, I think that was the Hitchcock movie he was oh, in Oh, was he? Okay Yeah, um, so like, yeah, so it's got this weird pedigree But now that it's like 20, yeah, about 20 years later, uh, that kind of conversation has taken on a dramatically different turn. Or at the mm. very least, uh, there's now context which has to be addressed. It is the elephant in the room. Yeah. The other context, which is super important, and it is indeed uh, the inspiration for the play, uh, is Leopold and Loeb. Yeah, the real, real life murderers. Yeah, and these were, uh, this was a huge... Huge court case uh, in the yeah, uh, Na- early part of the 20th century. Na- Nathan Leopold and Richard Loeb uh, killed a 14 year old boy. Yeah, and I I believe the um, the idea was they were simply trying to commit the perfect crime. Yeah, they were just trying to see if they could get away mm. with it. Is the idea, and it, be- it you know obviously that it was absolutely horrifying and shocking. The idea that murder would be committed not out of passion or even uh in order to mm. you know gain something but just to be done for its own sake was uh sort of eerily fascinating uh, and has been turned into a wide variety of films there's a pretty decent uh one with orson wells and dean stockwell uh called compulsion which i quite like mm. Um, I haven't seen Compulsion. It's quite good. It's I, not. A, it's not amazing filmmaking, but the storytelling is good, and Dean Stockwell and Wells are particularly good in that. I I did see Murder by Numbers, the Sandra Bullock movie. <laughs> oh, that's that's it's not like, a good movie. Or it's it's uh, the Leopold Michael and Lo- Pitt and, Michael Pitt and Ryan Gosling. Yeah, are are the t- the and they were younger at this one. They're like teenagers. Oh, yeah, but, Gosling was like barely out of like Remember the Titans at this time. Yeah, yeah. Um, he was in Remember the Titans, right? Am I crazy? Am I remembering the Titans? Uh, I, you but, know what? I, I, ha- I never saw the Titans. I never met them, so I can't remember them. I'm, I'm checking this out. People are gonna get really mad. At me. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, Leopold and Loeb also cited Nietzsche. He, so wasn't he wasn't Remember the Titans. I did remember the Titans, remember the titans. Uh, and um, I. I I don't know the actual facts of the case if Leopold and Loeb were also lovers, um, mm. but yeah, the, these characters in Rope were clearly modeled after Leopold and Loeb. Uh, real life murders that inspired a lot of movies, sim- similar to uh, the way Ed Gein inspired things like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Or was, Psycho. Or, uh, or indeed Psycho. Yeah. Uh, golly, uh, Hitchcock sure loved murder. He was fascinated by murder. He was fascinated yeah. by crime. And uh, the idea of contemplating actually committing these ultimate crimes was an intellectual thrill for a filmmaker like Hitchcock. I think that's because it comes up time and time again in a lot of his movies. Yeah. I feel like that's something that Hitchcock was in. I feel like something that's one of the things that makes Hitchcock's films still resonate beyond Mm. other, you know, sort of pulpy kind of thrillers is the idea that uh, people aren't just doing things, they're thinking about them. Yeah. And I feel like too often these sort of uh, compulsions or impulses or even fascinations people have in movies, um, 
they're just sort of considered like, oh, that's in their character or something, mm. or, or or there's some sort of glib sort of motivation for it. Well, when I was a child, I was hurt no. by a snowman, and now I am the snowman. I forget how that movie ended, but um, <laughs> you're talking about the movie The Snowman. I think that movie is a mess. Um, one day, well, one one day, I got a note that said, "Dear Mister Sir," so I wrote a note that said, "Dear Mister Police." <laughs> Um, but, uh, I think Hitchcock was fascinated by people who are driven to do something and then think about it mm. and then want to talk about it. Yeah. And then be like, I, I'm so alone in my fascination with murder. Will you talk murder with me? And then maybe we'll do one. <laughs> oh, no, we're not. We're not going to do one. Okay. <laughs> wink. No wink. Okay. never mind. Well, and I, I think this is wink. really, this is really common. I think a lot of people think about uh, death and crime and morbid things. It's, yeah. it's a natural impulse. Again, and, true crime is a popular genre. Yeah. Law and order is still on the air. Mm-hmm. People are interested mm-hmm. in crime. Uh, did, did you have like sort of a, a gloomy goth phase when you were a teen? Now. <laughs> oh, it's now? Okay. No, I, no, I'm, still, I, I'm not really, like I've always said, I'm phobic of death, like mm-hmm. in, in the abstract, but I've always been interested in sort of, uh, in real life crime, like true crime, doesn't really interest me, interest me that much because it's a little too real. Mm. It's I just I'm so overwhelmed by empathy for the people who suffer that I can't do it. But yeah. in a movie or a TV series or even something that's sort of fictionalized like this, I can detach myself just enough okay. that I can really appreciate sort of the morbid fascination of right. it. Yeah, yeah, but that's never gone away. I'm always yeah, yeah. interested in this kind yeah, of movie. Mor- morbid fascination has has always always been a big part of my life. Uh, catch, catch me at age you know 17 or 18, you'll find me at Necromance on Melrose, you know, po- poking <laughs> through. It's like, ooh, I can, I if I had enough money, I could buy a, a real deer skull. And here's like yeah. a, a you know full. You know, all, all these morbid things from like uh, pathology labs that they could sell to the public legally. Uh, yeah. So, you know, you could actually get human bones under the certain circumstances. Yeah. They have to be, yeah. you know, in the, in the follow all the rules and laws about yeah, it. But yeah, yeah necromance is, I don't know if people know what that is outside of LA, but uh, no, it's, it's a, it's a shop on Melrose uh, here in West Hollywood. That's been there for a good number of years. Actually, I'm surprised yeah. it's still open. I hope it's still open. Yeah. It's one of those places I haven't driven past since the pandemic started. Yeah, but, and I hope they're doing okay. But they sold like a lot of taxidermied animals and animal Hearts, but also like you know medical journals and disease yeah. journals and like t-shirts with gravestones on it was all very like goth deathy morbid stuff and i loved that store and i went there as often as i could and i yeah i was fantasizing about wait when i'm dreaming when i'm rich enough i can get a real human skull and just carry it around because <laughs> i'm that gloomy oh i'm yeah. oh now i'm gonna put on my music weird al yank it's like <laughs> it was a walking contradiction um <laughs> Like really morbid and really absurd. There was no yeah. middle ground. Yeah, I'm kind of the same way. Uh, but yeah, I think uh, Hitchcock was one of those people, and so he was constantly interested in uh, talking about it. Yeah, and intellectualizing it. Well, so yeah, this he's a idea, storyteller as well. Yeah. So all of his movies are about murder. These are kind of the, but they're the about conversation... people who think who are interested in murder. Well, that's true. But if you think about it, the conversations that people have in Rope mm. about murder getting away with murder how we feel about committing murder what's going to happen after we commit the murder what's the perfect way to dispose of a body these are all conversations that people are having while they make movies about murder Mm. there's a really good movie i i want more people to see this because it's a really interesting film and nobody talks about it i want to make sure i get the uh cast right uh it's a movie called the gazebo just Uh, just the gazebo it's 1959 uh it uh it stars glenn ford and debbie reynolds uh, Glenn Ford plays a screenwriter. Debbie Reynolds plays his actress wife, and someone is blackmailing them. Oh, you know what? I saw some of this with the sound off in a bar. 
No, I, when, like, okay. when I was on vacation in That's Denver, funny. Colorado, I went into this little dive bar and they had that on the TV. It's actually it's actually a good movie, but the plot is they're being they're being blackmailed. She doesn't know. Someone's going to say you're before you were married and before your wife had this like fancy movie star career. She did some salacious photo shoots, mm-hmm. and if you don't want these photographs to come out, you'll you'll give me all this money. And Glenn Ford is just at, at the end of his rope, and so he kills the guy. And now he's alone in his house at night, and he can't figure out what the hell to do. And then someone calls him on the phone, and it's Alfred Hitchcock. He does not make a cameo, but he does say Alfred Hitchcock is on the phone. Oh, oh that's funny. Hey, Hitch. Yeah, I'm in the middle of this screenplay. Hey, maybe you can help me out. If you had a dead body in your living room and you had to dispose of it real fast before your wife came home, what would you do? Incinerate. Yeah, I have a backyard. Okay. Well, I don't have a shovel, though. I could use the shovel from the fireplace. Thanks, Hitch. <laughs> Click. <laughs> Exact same thing. It's really great. Yeah. So, so this is this is a morbid thought exercise, not just from the characters, but from the filmmaker about uh, how how a murder would go down practically. Yeah. Uh, so again, they they mm. they kill David right away. They put him mm. in the big box, and uh, immediately we see the big difference in the sort of not character because they're both people who would go through with this, but the demeanor. Mm. Of the two murderers. And so John Dahl is very cool and collected and he's having a smoke. Like he just had great sex. He's just like, oh, that's the stuff. That was good murder. And Farley Granger is already traumatized mm. by what they've done. He yeah. was he agreed to do it. He consciously made the decision to do it. And he is completely unprepared for it. And guilt is overtaking him. And he's panicking. And they have already planned as the sort of pièce de résistance. Uh, to invite his friends and family over for a party. Mm-hmm. And everyone's going to be like, where's David? And they're going to be like, <laughs> I don't know. And Farley Granger is going <laughs> to lose his shit progressively over the night. Who killed David? Not me. <laughs> so like, they chase the dotted line around. The, okay. So, so the idea is we're kind of waiting to see when Farley Granger is going to crack. And while we're waiting for Farley Granger to crack, John Dahl is progressively being cuter and cuter like the rope that they strangled david with at one point he wraps up some books and says to david's father oh here are these books you wanted to borrow and he just gives him the murder weapon yep (laughs) lets him go home with it and he's gonna know that's in like a drawer somewhere in his house the rest of his life and he's gonna go (laughs) like muttley the dog (laughs) but murderous um and so, yeah, it's a big pressure cooker and everyone's there. Everyone is keeps like interacting with the table. They put food on the table for people to like have snacks. Mm-hmm. And so like here's David's fiance, and she's just like, yeah, I wonder where David is here. Munch, 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 munch. And it's so ghoulish. <laughs> it's so ghoulish and gross. It, it's not quite as ghoulish as um, something like in Titus Andronicus where no, they, 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 they cook actually... him and feed him to like the guests or anything. No, just, that's, just... that would be that would be different. That, that's another level. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but it's still ghoulish, though. And uh, it's something... that, that would have been a little bit more uh, Rocky Horror-inflected, however. Yeah, because, again, we, we usually say this for the end, but let's just talk about the elephant mm-hmm. in the room. Beyond the fact that we're looking at how uh, Hollywood was portraying queerness in the 1940s and how free Rocky Horror became mm-hmm. to celebrate queerness really openly, uh, there's also a very key centerpiece in the Rocky Horror Picture Show where everyone's eating dinner, everyone's like, hey, where's Meatloaf? Yeah. And then while they're talking about him, 
That's a rather tender subject. Not a slice, anyone. Yeah, it turns out every they're all eating meatloaf. The guy, not the meat. <laughs> they're Although eating, they, Eddie is the character's name. I mean, they might have turned him into a meatloaf. I don't actually recall what's on the plate. And no, then it's, at some it's, point, it's, it's this giant roast-looking thing. Yeah, and then at some point, Frankenfurter pulls off the, the whole uh, tablecloth, and they're just, there's yes, yes, Eddie's corpse right there. It's like ripped-apart corpse and under, yeah. underneath the tablecloth. Yeah, it's very, very mm. ghoulish. It's also, like, the worst-paced scene in the whole movie. The uh, When they do the, when they perform that scene live uh, for the live Rocky Horror casts, they, they just fuck around on stage. Like it's the, there's nothing going on. The yeah. characters are sitting still. There's no song. There's yeah. a lot of dead air. So there's just, just all kinds of awkward, all kind of jokes. So the cast just sits down on the stage and they just start snacking. <laughs> they're, not even, they're not matching anything. They're it's not making any break. jokes. Yeah. This, this, it's their intermission. Essentially. Right. But what, but rope, mm. which is the feature length version of that scene is impossibly gripping. Mm. It's really excellent. It feels like a stage play because, you know, there's always that one wall missing. Yeah. So and, and, there's that. And he filmed it live you know, to mm. look like it's live, like it's one theatrical uh, experience. Exactly. There's a couple of takes in the middle. There's one great, there's one big cut in the middle. Usually they're trying to hide them. Sometimes they're more effective than others. But there's one cut in the middle where, uh, you know, they're having the party and John Dahl knows exactly what's going on and he's having the time of his life. And Farley Granger is every time John Dahl hints that they've killed somebody euphemistically or mm. talks about where David is. Oh, I have no idea where he could be. Maybe you should go after his fiance. Something tells me you have a chance. <laughs> I think he's uh, out of the picture now. <laughs> Cough. <coughs> in fact, Cough. You, might, murdered a guy. <laughs> you might say we just ate Uter and he's in our stomachs right now. Oh, wait, scratch that last one. <laughs> It's a Simpsons reference. <laughs> uh, but there's this bit where all of a sudden, like, again, Farley Granger is the only one who knows the, the inner meaning of all of these remarks. Mm. And now James Stewart is there. And again, James and, Stewart and is the Farley one who gave him the idea. And Farley Granger's freaking out. Like, there's a scene where somebody walks in and says, where's David? And he crushes a glass in his hand. And, and he gets there's blood all over. And all, and all of a sudden, uh, uh, John, I forget who it was. John Dahl says something really on the nose. And Farley Granger has a panic moment, and then all of a sudden, boom, our first real cut. Mm. Unabashed, unapologetic cut mm. to James Stewart going, wait a minute. <laughs> and he's just, his. there's no evidence, but his interest is piqued. Yeah. And he knows that something has gone on. It's almost, the way the movie plays it, as though he knows that these two men who live together have a secret. Uh, because uh, he's played by Jimmy Stewart, there's no queer energy coming off of him. I think, really, we, can, no. I think we can say. Yeah, it, um, it's kind of in the text, but Jimmy Stewart isn't really leaning into it at all. No, no. Yeah. It's, it's like um, watching, um, uh, who was it? Um, Boyd and Charlton Heston. Stephen Boyd. Stephen Boyd. Stephen Boyd's and, and going for Charlton Heston, Heston in, in Ben Hur. Yeah, where uh, in fact uh, Stephen Boyd was directed that uh, he and Judah Ben Hur were lovers when they were teenagers, and he still kind of has feelings for him. But they didn't say that to Charlton Heston because he wouldn't play it. He wouldn't be down with it at all. A, they knew he wouldn't be down for it, but it makes the scenes play really, yeah. really, uh, really interestingly. Yeah, there's dialogue in Rope that seems mm. evocative, and they talks about um, how like. Uh, John Dahl's character would like, you know, he, these are the types of bedtime stories he used to tell at night. And you're saying to yourself, bedtime stories, huh? And there you go. That's sort mm. of evocative without actually coming right out and saying things. But you're right. James Stewart is playing this much more professorial. Um, however, by that point, he doesn't show up until almost a half hour into the movie. 
Yeah. And and the movie's great until then. It's not like, oh, thank God. It's actually, in Compulsion, it's kind of interesting because um, Orson Welles actually, I think, plays, a, is it Clarence Darrow? Who did uh, that case? Yes. Uh, Leopold, Leopold and Lopez. Yeah, yeah, he actually, he shows up about halfway through that movie. And it's like, by that point, the movie was losing energy. The movie was over. They'd already been arrested. Mm-hmm. I'm waiting for it to whatever. And then all of a sudden, Orson Welles shows up and I'm like, oh, thank God. There's a whole, like a whole new movie started all of a sudden. There's none of that. Like, John Dahl and Farley Granger are perfectly capable of carrying this whole movie by themselves if Jimmy Stewart had never shown up. But Jimmy Stewart shows up, and, yeah, he's, he's, until then, it just, wow, where was I going with this? I had a whole point. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not sure. You're talking about uh, the the entrance of uh, the Jimmy Stewart character. He's more professorial than he is uh, a peer of theirs. Uh, He's the one who's bringing the philosophy that they're living by, so he actually has a little bit to answer for. Yeah, um, no, I forgot I was going with it. Okay, well, came, I'll, maybe I'll remember it later. Well, I'll, I'll pick up your fumble. Uh, Thank you. <laughs> we're we're leaving it in the show. Um, Here's how the, the sausage uh, gets made. Let's let's go back to queerness for a second here. Yeah, I think it's going somewhere think, in that direction. Okay. I can't remember where. Yeah, exactly. that, that you you can say that the John Dahl character like might have a thing for Jimmy Stewart a little mm-hmm. bit, uh, but. Uh, regardless of the, the the queerness of the Jimmy Stewart character, uh, he is providing essentially a counterpoint for the queer killer, which was a, a really unfortunate stereotype in a lot of fiction. I was waiting to bring um, this up because yeah. I was, I was, while we're talking about how interesting mm. it is that there's a lot of queer coding in this movie, mm. the unassail- the unavoidable fact is it, the it created gay a stereotype. Yeah. yeah, the um, gay. Well, it didn't create it. I think it was already there, but like mm. it was it well, codified yeah. it. It was made it once again. The, there was overt. There was a, a tendency to uh, make your murder characters in thrillers. Uh, queer coded yeah. because they represented sort of to, to the eye of a, a straight heteronormative audience, uh, an aberration. They are more morally, uh, deviating from, uh, from your know, ordinary morals. And they are also sexually doing it as well. And again, and, if you recall our episode about like scare films, this yeah. was being preached at the time. It was exactly, openly yeah. being said that mm-hmm. people who are queer are, mm-hmm. Criminals, and yeah. that's and obviously that's horrifically wrong. But it, like it, that was a that was a stereotype, and out folded into that was also this sort of anti intellectualism. Mm. Uh, so you'll see a lot of uh, characters that are murderers, but they're also a feat, but they're also kind of insufferable esthetes. Yeah. And the most recent example of this might be the Hannibal TV series, mm-hmm. where uh, Hannibal Lecter, played by Mads Mikkelsen, is very effete. He's kind of effeminate. He's not this big, burly, ultra-masculine man. And these characters... They also really played up over the course of that series, the... Uh, kind of the, the, the quote, romance between I think it's pretty the... explicit by the end of the series, okay. actually. I mean, without being... There's actually like headlines in the newspapers, murder lovers, like that kind yeah. of thing. Um, so it's as explicit as it kind of can be without changing the original text of the books. Not just change it. I don't care. Uh, but well, uh, they changed quite a bit. I don't know why. <laughs> I feel like they should have just gone for it even more. But it's it's pretty open. Just, so. just open mouth kissing right yeah, there. I, would have, I wish there had been it. more of it. All right. But uh, you'll notice uh, as well as part of this stereotype that has been perpetuated uh, all throughout fiction. Uh, that there's a counterpoint to these killer characters, and it's usually the uh, the the quote like heteronormative guy. Mm-hmm. Usually, it usually it's two men, but there there are female counter versions of this as well. Mm-hmm. Um, Brad, yeah. Uh, but 
they're the ones who are uh, the ones who kind of see the the quote deviant character mm-hmm. and are a little bit allured by it. There's the seductive element to it. And that's definitely true in Hannibal. And I think that's kind of true here that there are these characters who are given these masculine counterpoints. And I think that's where the Jimmy Stewart character comes in. Mm, Uh, He's giving them a counterpart and he's the one who's realized Mm. that he has given them the bad ideas. There's but there's some sort of moral rot. There's something in you. What is it? Oh gosh, you're too gay. That's what they're kind of saying with the the Jimmy Stewart character. But I'll say this about rope. Even though the characters are murderers, they're, they're morally reprehensible characters. Yeah. And they do play into this really unfortunate uh, stereotype of the queer killer. Hitchcock gives them a lot of agency. And I think in showing them just sort of living together in a regular relationship, Mm -hmm. uh, which reads pretty openly to a modern eye, he's not, uh, he's not uh, treating them badly. Mm -hmm. He's not uh, scapegoating their queerness. He's actually letting the the queerness breathe a little bit. And I think I kind of appreciate that about Rogue. Well, it's interesting because this is one of those instances in which the fact that they are not openly portrayed as queer Mm. is this weird, has this weird sense of normalizing their queerness. And so that they feel it actually just really domestic. Exactly. Um, And that is normalizing is the word. That is interesting. And I think, and I think one thing you, you didn't bring up in great detail, and this is, again, this is a generality, but I think it's mostly true. Mm. Uh, the uh, queer-coded killers in many of the genre films, uh, frankly, to this day, but uh, you know, certainly in the past when people couldn't talk about queerness openly in cinema, uh, they very rarely had a lot of screen time. Yeah, they were usually not the protagonists of the movie. Uh, they usually were just sort of you know in the shadows, exerting influence, killing, maybe telling a joke, something, but they didn't. They weren't in, like, literally every shot of the movie like they are in Rope. Mm. Except for the credits, but whatever. Um, That's something that is very distinctive. And there's a certain amount of... Again, no one's saying that, you know, nobody can be, like, treated as a murderer in a story. Mm. The question is, are you doing it tastefully and ethically? Um, And even tastefully is, you know arguably not that important uh depending on whether or not you've got the right tone Mm. um but uh yeah he's the characters are treated with a lot of respect and dignity even though they've done a highly immoral thing the murder part uh my issue with rope actually is i think because i think it's wonderful i think it's so witty and so Mm. biting and it's uh, a good wicked cynical little pot boiler again it's a movie about the fascination with murder and it, it sort of is morbid curiosity in movie form and Hitchcock did a few of those. I think this is one of the better ones. Um, I think it kind of whiffs the ending a little bit. And this is one where I kind of wish I had had an opportunity before we did this uh, to read the play or I don't know if it's ever been filmed mm. as a play, but um, because I suspect, I know in the play, according to, as you mentioned, mm. I've heard that the queerness is way more explicit, but I wonder if the ending plays the same because the movie ends uh, with uh, James Stewart Finally becoming convinced without having, you know, it's all, it's all like incidental evidence and conjecture, like nothing that would hold up in court, uh, that, um, that they killed David. Hmm. And after he proves it, after he looks inside the, the cabinet, 
It's a big long speech, and I feel like he mentions his own culpability. He talks about how ashamed he is. Yeah, but I feel like there's a lot of production code moralizing at the end there, and it's then I feel like it's the rest of the movie was so thoughtful about how it was handling its ethical issues that I feel like ultimately because he's like the character who finds the body and like it signals the police in some way uh, that Jimmy Stewart gets let off the hook because I feel like the ultimate meat of this story beyond Hmm. again, again, this is in a sociopolitical or specifically political uh, uh, context is the idea of what is the ethical responsibility we have for discussion. Hmm. Uh, And so like, and 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 also, and also because he's a professor, uh, there's that classroom element. Yeah. What are we teaching? Are are we teaching the correct morals to people or, or, you know, if if we're cynical to students, what are we passing on to them? Yeah. I think, I think, I think it's more ethics than morals Mm. personally, because the idea is you can introduce ideas ethically Mm. that you can introduce ideas that are unethical in an ethical way. Yeah. If you make them seem titillating or salacious or fascinating or appealing and they are grotesque and monstrous, then that is an unethical way of presenting them. And James Stewart thought he was in a comfort zone. He thought, okay, everyone understands what I really mean. No, actually. And this is the reason why we need clear dialogue about a lot of the topics that we discuss. We need we can't just assume the president is joking when they say something horrifying. We actually need a certain amount of decorum because there will always be someone who thinks to themselves, yeah, <laughs> the worst possible interpretation, which is what I mm. want them to say, is exactly what's going on. And I'm not saying that wasn't even what the president meant. We all know what I'm talking about. but <laughs> We all know what I'm talking about. Yeah. But like, I just feel like that's, that's, that's still relevant. The mm. idea that you know, when you insert bad ideas, when you insert horrifying or unethical mm. or immoral ideas into a conversation, you have a responsibility to handle them in a moral way. And there's this great conversation in the middle of the movie where Jimmy Stewart is talking about his idea about how it should be okay to kill a waiter if you can't get a table. And the guy's like, okay, but you're joking. And Jimmy Stewart's like, no. At some point, you need to say you're joking. No, you're making no. everyone really uncomfortable. Like I've, I've heard some comedians say that, but they're comedians. They're, they're on stage saying, you know, kind of surprising or shocking things. Yeah. Like, uh, who was it? Oh, it was Bill Maher. Uh, you know, however you feel about Bill Maher. Um, yeah. But uh, he uh, he said, you know, he, he was pro-anything death. And then the, the punchline is like, pro-death pro, pro death penalty, pro-murder, pro-everything. And the, the punchline was, anything to get traffic moving faster. Um, mm-hmm. Of course, that's a gag. He's a comedian. Yeah. He's on stage. Whether or not he actually believes that, he can say that in that context. Right, but that's but again, there's an issue but, of delivery. But again, because again, yeah. the, the punchline You're is that a, a, I'm a bad person. Yeah, that's the punchline there. Sometimes you watch Bill Maher's show; all he's doing is propagating ugly ideas, and that's just it. That is the joke: mm. is that it's okay to say these things, and on some level, you're just like, at some point, you're just being a dick. <laughs> it's not even a joke yeah, anymore. Um, you're just being a dick now. As, as comedians go, just being a dick is kind of. Just, Shtick. Uh, I, yeah, I just don't think it's very good shtick. I don't think yeah. it's, a lot. Of, I know some comedians yeah. talk about it, and again, I'm not. I'm not advocating for like saying there's. You know, we can't say anything anymore. Mm. Of course not. But I do believe that it's okay to criticize someone if they're not coming across well, or if they give, or if they're encouraging bad if, ideas. If they're giving yeah, bad. So bad like, messages. it's okay to say um, that's in poor taste, and here's also, a, you know. There you go. Uh, there's one thing I did like about the ending, though, uh, yeah. where and, and we're these are all spoilers for Rope, but uh, we, we've already is, ruined it. Yeah, he uh, Jimmy Stewart ha- finds a pistol and he fires it out the window rather than shooting uh, 
murderers yeah. fires it out the window and in what I think is just this masterful use of sound design we barely hear coming from the street below I think I heard some gunshots I think we need to call the police I think they came from up there like mm. we just we know what's going to happen yeah while the the three main characters are the camera's still in the room with them and we just sort of see the hope drain from their bodies yeah the dialogue it's a, it's a good, stops and they're yeah. just like well there's nothing we can do about technically, it technically it's a yeah. good sequence but I agree with you that they I think Jimmy Stewart uh having this sort of come to God moment where it's like, no, there, there needs to be a line somewhere. Like he just has that revelation. I think you should have that speech. There needs to be a line somewhere, but then I think he needs to sit down and watch the Leopold and Loeb characters carry the body out. And he's just sort of has to live with that. Yeah. That he's, he's partly responsible for that. It ends with him doing something heroic. It Mm. should end with him realizing that maybe he's not legally culpable in this, but in his head, he knows that he that encouraged he, he kind of caused it. He is at least directly connected to it. And he talks, there's a line in which he talks about his shame, but it's moved on. And I feel like the whole thing with him, like shooting out the window mm. again, I'm not sure if that's the original play or not. I feel like that whole thing is basically just, it's really hard to end this thing with a bang. Yeah. We're going to do it literally. Cause all he really needs to do is call the cops. But you want to do something a little bit more dramatic dramatic. than that. You want something more dramatic, boom, it's Mm. effective. But it's one of those things where it's actually like, it's also New York. And you realize that, I mean, I'm not saying New York is, you know, there are gunshots on every block every minute of every day. But it's a big fucking city. And not necessarily anyone is going to know which apartment that that came from. It's also pretty high up. It's at least four or five stories up. So if depending on how many people are on the street at that point and that neighborhood, mm. which doesn't look like terribly trendy, there's a whole bunch of like factories and everything nearby. Who's to say that would even be effective? So it's one of those things that's like, it seems cool, but the more you think about it, the more you realize the, he actually should have called somebody. <laughs> he probably should have, he probably, oh, he probably should have said something to the effect of, I already called somebody when I was downstairs. Yeah. I'll you mean. know, I'm there, I've just, I've been just been stalling this whole time because I was a hundred percent sure I was. And right. that would have been dramatic too. Also would have been fine. You hear them coming up the, the walk, hear the knock on the door, boom, credits. I, I still think that because this is such a cynical film, it would have benefited from a more cynical ending. Maybe. Where, where uh, Jimmy Stewart realizes that he was in the wrong and he's kind of, the murder already occurred. It's the first thing that happens in the movie. Yeah. And he's, he's helpless now. He's already caused the damage, and turning these people over isn't going to absolve him. Yeah. Uh, so exactly. he he yeah, needs he needs to sit down and and really just sort of ponder that while he looks. I think the last shot should have been a shot of David, like the dead the, David, the, the body, the yeah. body, and yeah. like the, they're like carting him out or they're stuffing him in a bag or something, and he just has to watch that happen. Yeah. I wonder if that might have been too gruesome for the production code, though. I, surely it would have been, but yeah. that, it would have been fitting. It would have been great. There's a bunch of different ways to end this thing. Um, again, that's my only real beef with it mm. is I feel that the ending is, it feels like they're trying to make sure that the grimmer elements mm. of it are in some way ameliorated. And because the rest of the movie was so morbid, mm. um, it feels like a, a, not a total cop out, but it feels like they didn't quite nail the land. No. And that's something that I've actually was watching. I've been watching quite a few Hitchcock movies, uh, well, in my whole life. But uh, lately, I've seen a few more than usual, and um, still watching them with my wife and partner, M. Lapis da Silva. And we realized that it's very common for Hitchcock to blow the landing. Mm-hmm. Some some of his movies end perfectly. Yeah, some of his movies are just like, okay, we can get on with it, Hitch. Do we really need the speech at the end of Psycho? 
do we really need all of this falling action at the end of Rebecca? <laughs> the last like 15 minutes of Rebecca are just, they're, they're, everything's wrapped up in like mm. a thematic or a character perspective. And he just like added some plot at the last minute. And now we have to deal with that plot that you added at the last minute. We could speed through that a little. So I feel like this is Kitchcock trying to just make it punchy. Yeah. But even that didn't quite work. But um, in any case, um, Rope. Rope uh, Rope's a neat film. It, it's a neat film. I, yeah. I, I appreciate just its great thriller elements. I appreciate that it's thoughtful about uh, topics like murder. <laughs> uh, I mean, there is a, there's a philosophy to anything. So yeah. no, it's it's a philosophy it's just, of, of get, these, you know, sadly, immoral acts. Sadly, but, people uh, are murdered. Yeah. In real life, and it's a t- it's something that needs to be discussed. And these types of there's a reason why murder is so often a subject in fiction is because it's horrifying mm. and it's fascinating it's because fascinating, it does, because but, it doesn't uh, happen every to everyone. Well, and, and a lot of people fantasize about uh, you know timelines where murder is permitted, which is why we have characters like James Bond, who, you mm-hmm. know, people who do commit murder for heroic reasons. Oh hell, there's a speech uh, in uh, in this movie where James Stewart's talking about. Okay, we can't have murder all the time because then no one would get anything done. What if we just had a holiday mm. where people are allowed to murder people and you can just see the creators of The Purge like going, interesting, I'll, maybe I'll write a script about that. <laughs> maybe I'll write a series of movies. Yeah, and they'll about, be really good, actually. Yeah, one and a half of them will be good. Um, oh, shush. <laughs> purge Election Year is awesome. Purge Election, I think, I think the last three Purge movies are great. Mm. I think the, the first f- Purge movie would be fine if it wasn't the first. <laughs> because you don't the whole point of the purge is that the purge if you're not familiar we're talking about the purge is a series of horror movies about um this like very near future in america where they've instituted this national holiday where for one night everyone's allowed to kill if they want to and it's a way of keeping the population down and also a very specific way of because rich white people can afford to like barricade themselves in fancy houses at night it's you know it's very political mm. and it's very much about how various government and economic policies are designed to keep very specific groups of people down. Um, the first movie was all about the rich white people barricading themselves in the house. It was a home invasion movie. Yeah. It was badly, badly shot. Badly it's, it's, not it's, it's, it's not great. It's not great. It's a fun concept, but yeah. a pretty bad movie. Well, the problem with that movie is that you're starting off the franchise with the least interesting characters. For me, the, the most interesting characters are the people who are stuck outside in the purge. Yeah who can't afford to barricade themselves into a fancy house. People who are, and this is what we see in the Purge Anarchy, this is what we see in Purge Election, this is what we see in the first Purge. I feel like if you wanted to do the, like, rich conservative family that's been profiting off of the misery of others mm. uh, and realizes that it's wrong, that's what you do, like, the fifth Purge movie when interest has, like, waned a little bit and, like... Now we have a smaller budget, but hey, there's this one thing we never really talked about. It's like, what happens if it gets twisted around and what's that going to be like? The sort of irony, oh God, I realized all of these policies that I've been supporting actually are horrible if they happen to me. Like, mm-hmm. that might have been interesting, like, as a much later afterthought. Yeah. But starting with it was always a bad idea. And I think I'm kind of amazed that they were able to do mm-hmm. more after that, but I'm glad they did because those other ones are cool. <laughs> But that's the purge. That's yeah. that's neither here nor there. Well, it's similar because we're talking about like mm. talking about murder and talking about these sort of ideas about sort of what happens when you realize that a lot of the rules we live by as a society, what if we stopped enforcing them? Yeah. Dangerous. Um, but anyway, that's rope. 
excellent film. Uh, pretty readily available. Please check it out if you haven't already. Um, yeah. Good old it's, rope. It's it's quite good. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and uh, the, the context of uh, freeing and normalizing uh, extreme uh, criminal queer characters is something that was... Uh, Rocky Horror was very heavily influenced by. Yeah, very, very much so. Um, so basically, like, this is, like, almost like rope, but now we get to say all the quiet parts loud and <laughs> sing about <laughs> and, them. And in music, yeah. Yeah. Um, anyway, uh, next week on Critically Acclaimed... Critically Acclaimed. Next this is, week this is on episode, episode Zero. <laughs> I'm leaving it in. This one's my flub. I think they're all my flubs. Uh, but next week, we realize that we've been talking about a topic and we haven't necessarily done the best job of giving a baseline reading of it so next week uh while we're on the subject of queerness in classic hollywood we're going to be talking about an iconic documentary mm-hmm. uh that's uh really you know it's it's popularity helped change the conversation about a lot of classic hollywood films uh, we're going to be talking about the celluloid closet which is mm-hmm. just a documentary about queerness in hollywood queerness in hollywood uh, up through when the film was made which was 1995 mm-hmm. So there's been a lot of changes since then, and I'd love to see a sequel to The Celluloid Closet. I think uh, overdue, yeah. But yeah, a lot of the early depiction of, of queerness as depicted in The Celluloid Closet are still really applicable. And yeah. uh, the, the way queer characters were coded, weren't coded, were depicted, and uh, attitudes towards gayness yeah. uh, were handled uh, by film over the years. So if you're interested in the conversation we just had about rope and the way that rope handled queerness, the Southern closet is very much like a sort of a broad overview mm-hmm. of a lot of the gay coding, uh, that was happening in Hollywood, um, over the decades. Uh, it's, uh, it's a claim documentary. Thank God it's still available. Sometimes a lot of these like really iconic Hollywood documentaries are not readily available. <coughs> Visions of light. <coughs> I don't that, know that's that's, that's some straight up BS, man. That's, that's that needed a Blu-ray release. I'm, I don't know if maybe the clips are too expensive, but like that needed like a 4K release like a mm. long ass time ago. It's a great documentary about the art of cinematography. It's wonderful. Um, but totally close it's available. So we'll be doing that next week on episode zero. Thank you everybody for listening to episode zero. Uh, again, we'll be back next week. Totally close it. Blah blah blah. Uh, we've got a whole bunch of stuff. Don't we? We've got uh, Twitter. <laughs> We're on Twitter at Critic Acclaim. I'm at Lane Viviani. I'm at Whitney Seibel. If you want to talk about anything we discussed on this episode or any other topic in particular, you're more than welcome to write us an email. Our email address is letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. We would love to hear from you. We might read your email in an upcoming episode of We've Got Mail. We have a Patreon. Patreon.com slash Network, where we have a ton of exclusive content, including podcasts dedicated to Star Trek, Batman, Disney, the Academy Awards, commentary tracks, and the like. Uh, we also, uh, well, not Whitney, but Mich- uh, M. Lapis da Silva, my wife and partner, and I, we have a soap business now over on Etsy. If you go to Salt Cat Soap, uh, you can check out a whole line of uh, distinct and uh, really cool soaps. All of them that are on the site right now are designed and made by M. Lapis da Silva. I might have a few throughout the year. Uh, we just released a whole bunch of new designs. Uh, for Valentine's Day, including one that is my very favorite scent I've ever smelled. Um, they're called Breakup Bars. They look like uh, you know hearts that have been like broken in half. It's mm. you know Valentine's Day type offer, and we have a few of those. And it smells like dark chocolate and orange, and it's so good. <laughs> it's so good, you guys. <laughs> you like those chocolate oranges, uh, the, yeah. the the crack open ones you get what, in your Christmas my, stocking. My favorite cookie ever is a cookie. It's called Pims, and it's like a. a, a of a uh, chewy wafer and a thin layer of dark chocolate and then just like orange jam 
in the middle. Yeah. Just, I could eat those all day. And you'd be like, hey, what happened to this lifetime supply of Pims that we had this morning? And I would be like, oh, I ate those because they're that good. <laughs> um, anyway, I love that one. But we have a bunch of really, really cool stuff. Uh, some of them are like super fancy and uh, they're all really, really pretty. And uh, one of them is also inspired by our cat Luca. And if you go to, um, uh, uh, well, it's a bit, I'll try to retweet it. Uh, my Twitter, we did a little video of uh, me yelling at Luca to get off the counter, but it's one of the Luca bars. Mm. Really cute. Uh, but uh, yeah, that's over there too. So that's uh, on our Etsy store, Salt Cat Soap. And uh, yeah, we'll be back with uh, Sally Closet. And uh, now we're done. Thanks for listening. I see you shiver with Antissa. Patient. Ah!